Warning, real life, real crime, the podcast should be for listeners that are 18 years of older, as each episode may contain strong adult language and descriptions of acts of violence or of a sexual nature that were told to me by the victims of the crimes or the criminals who perpetrated the crimes against the victim. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I'm Woody Overton, your host. Before we get started today, I'm going to do a couple shout-outs. And first of all, I want to shout-out to all of our fans for making us such a huge success. We're in over 45 countries across the globe. We've surpassed 7,000 downloads in less than a month and it's because of y'all and you're, you're killing it and you're sharing it in word of mouth and our private Facebook page went from three members to over 225 in less than two weeks so y'all if you want to join that page just look it up on Facebook and send us an invite and we'll get you approved. We have the best moderating team ever, and they take care of the site. And the site has a lot of extra bonus materials, pics of the perpetrators and locations of the crimes and court documents and press releases, etc. Plus, it's pretty interesting, our, our fan interaction. They have discussions on the different cases. And just check it out. Send us a request, and we'll get you approved so you can enjoy it also. And that being said, we... Received a lot of requests for more episodes and more information and, and ask me anything sessions, which we completed and posted the first one last night. And we decided to go with Patron to help support and grow our podcast. And I had never even heard of it. And one of our fans suggested it. And so we did do it. We started a Patron page and the links will be posted. And it's simply two tiers where if you subscribe, you'll get more information and many episodes and episodes and stuff like that. Check it out, y'all, and it'll help us out on continuing to grow the show and produce more stuff. But I want to give a shout out. We started it, and we have seven people who have already subscribed through Patreon. And the first one is Jenny White. Anyone would really want to thank you. It's awesome. And then Miss Mary Alice Cafirio. I hope I'm saying that right, Mary Alice. C-A-F-I-E-R-O. We really appreciate you subscribing. And then there's Miss Amy Derrick from 1096 Crime Chicks. Subscribe. Thank you, Amy. We really, really appreciate it. And Miss Shannon Hayes. Miss Shannon, thank you. It's awesome. And then Tanya Truel, my longtime dear friend. We really appreciate you, Tanya, you and Brad, for subscribing. It's awesome. Thank you. And Miss Christine Hernandez. Wow. Thank you, Christine. Really, really appreciate it. 
and Miss Cassie Wallace, another one of our super fans. We appreciate you subscribing, y'all. It'll go a long ways, and we're really trying to grow everything from merchandise to we've already have a booth scheduled for Crime Con in this year, which is in New Orleans, and we'll be doing more announcements about that. So I really just want to say thank y'all about that. And, and if you don't know about Patron, we'll be posting some links to it. Check it out. And in no way is going to stop all of our fans from getting their regular Friday dose of real life, real crime. The It's just simply an extra add-on, if you will. It's something that's going to help us make this go viral with your continued support but we love all our fans and you're all awesome and we're just smashing the numbers and want to thank you so much okay today's episode is going to be entitled murder me now exclamation mark on november 15 2002 i was working in the Uniform Patrol Division for the Livingston Parish Sheriff's Office. I was working on the east side of the parish. Now, Livingston Parish was split up geographically for the Sheriff's Office on the east side and the west side. And our shift was a tight-knit group. It didn't matter which side you worked, and oftentimes we'd have to run back from one side of the parish to the other if, if there was a gunfight or a manhunt or whatever. But we were all tight, a tight-knit group. And a buddy of mine, Deputy Kim McMorris, called a call on the west side of a missing young girl. And he arrived at the call, and the mother reported that her daughter, Courtney LeBlanc, who was 12 years old, was missing. And the mom's name was Jennifer Bordelon. And she stated that she had spent the night at the hospital the night before because her brother had been in a bad car wreck and that Courtney had stayed home alone, was working on a book report, and that when she got in from the hospital that day, Courtney wasn't there. And now Courtney had also run away about four months before. That's one of the first questions Ken would have asked, right? When he's taking the report, he took the information or her physical description, got a picture of her, and he would ask. And taking initial reports, just a standard thing. On a teenager, you ask, have they ever run away before? Was she happy at home, et cetera? And then when Ken asked that, the mom said, yes, she did run away about four months ago, but it was just to a friend's house and it really wasn't that big of a deal. So Ken took the report and turned it in, and when it made it to the detective's office, it was assigned to uh, Detective Chuck Watts, who I've mentioned in previous episodes, and Detective Benita Sager. Now, these at the time were the two most senior detectives in the sheriff's office, and both of them were phenomenal in their own right and the cases that they had worked over the years. And when I became a detective, I've learned a lot from both of them. Two totally separate styles, two totally different personalities, and really, really good detectives. So when Chuck and Benita receive the report, they go to the residence to speak with the mother and get some more information on the background of Courtland LeBlanc. Just basically get a feel for it, see what they thought. So Detective Watts and, and Sager continue to interview the mother, and 
to find out that she had recently moved to Livingston Parish from Mississippi and that Courtney lived with her full time and that Courtney also had two half sisters from their mother's previous relationship. They're twins and they were older than Courtney. So they continued the interview and Detective Sager pulled Detective Watts to the side and said, hey, you know what? Something's wrong here. And she she told him, she said, this isn't a runaway. And he's like, why? And Benita said, this girl's makeup is all here. All her clothes are here. Her money is here. Everything is here. And if you're a teenage girl and you're going to run away, you're going to take your makeup. You're going to take your money. You're going to take some clothes. And she said she didn't take anything. There's nothing missing, Chuck. So then they knew they had to kick it into high gear, right? So, of course, the family is panicked by this time anyway. And the news media became involved, and they put it out. According to the blonde was missing, and then all the neighborhood people came involved. Even though they had just moved there, the massive amounts of volunteers came out to begin the search. Let me digress for a second that was a friday we were on shift that friday when the mom reported her missing and by monday we worked friday saturday and sunday nights and got off at 6 a.m on monday morning on monday mornings i always left my house phone on because i generally was going to get a call from our chief deputy kearney foster it was an awesome guy but i mean he's hardcore old school police officer and leader and he just was a no-nonsense guy but I learned more from that man than anybody in my time in law enforcement but Mr. Kearney was also in charge of fielding complaints against officers right and then I arrested a lot of people every weekend and a lot of times there was it may have been a little force had to be used or whatever it was generally somebody was going to call Mr. Kearney or, or, or the Chief Kearney on Monday morning and file some type of report against me and he would just call me and either I had to go into his office or he would take my statement over the phone and, and deal with it but we had pagers at the time we didn't have cell phones and my pager went off I even though I had court that morning anyway pager went off and it was requesting off-duty deputies to volunteer to come look for missing Courtney LeBlanc now, let me explain to you about sheriff's office time back then. Willie Graves was, was the sheriff, and he's a, great, he's a great guy. But there were three kinds of time that you worked at the sheriff's office under Sheriff Graves. And that was regular time, which you got paid your salary for. And then there was K time or comp time, where anything that you worked over uh, your normal hours, you got you didn't get money for it. You, you didn't get paid time and a half, but you got time to take off. And then there was what I called willy time. Um, and that was whenever something went out like that to volunteer, that was unofficially willy time. And on willy time was kind of a mandatory volunteer situation. When that, those calls went out, you did it, right? But we worked a lot of other things like kid fun days and public relations events and stuff like that that were really time well in this case with a young girl missing i'd have worked it for free anyway so we get the page about it and then 
go to Denham where everybody's setting up and, and they're starting to search for Courtney LeBlanc. And the first thing I did was actually talk to Anita on the scene and she told me what she had told Chuck or she told a group of us. She said, y'all don't believe this is a runaway. She took none of her makeup. Like her makeup was still open on the counter and she didn't take any of her clothes and her money's there, et cetera. And then, so we really need to work this. We're going to search and search for any type of evidence. And, you know, who knows? It was truly a missing person case. But the problem was in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at that time, and actually in Denham Springs also, there was a serial killer. And everybody knew about it. And this guy was abducting women and taking them, raping and murdering them and dumping them in the different bodies of water, mainly in the Chafalaya Basin, et cetera. But they had tied at least three at that time to him by his DNA. Now, one of the ones that had been abducted owned a business not five miles from where Courtland LeBlanc went missing. So... Their fear is in that somehow this little young girl was tied into the serial killer. That's that's the first thought that's in everybody's mind. So then I saw a picture of her, right? They already had flyers drawn up, and Benita, the Texas Sager, had the photographs of her. And let me tell you something. This girl was absolutely beautiful. I was like, holy smokes. And she had the bluest eyes that just penetrate you right and when I, when I looked in her eyes I thought god the, she has the eyes of an old soul you know like her eyes were kind of haunting to me if you will but she certainly didn't look like she was 12 years old she was like I don't know how do you say fully developed but she was she looked like she was 18 years old and so that further raised the suspicions that it might have been the work of the serial killer because he had not abducted any young girls at that point, right? Well, Courtney LeBlanc looked like a young lady. And, I mean, just an absolutely beautiful girl. So the search was on, if you will. And the FBI got involved because they were already involved in the serial killer uh, case. And, and on our days off, that Monday and Tuesday, we helped do the search. And it was during this time that I saw one of the TV stations interviewing a guy. And now I'm, I'm looking at this guy, and he was probably, I thought, maybe late 30s. is a good-looking white guy, clean-cut, but he had his hat turned around backwards and was in jeans and, and a shirt, and he had a stack of flyers. And I'm listening to him, and it turns out he's saying that he is Cortland LeBlanc's stepfather. And I'm thinking, I didn't hear anything about a stepfather. He said she was a single mom, right? But he was just really cool about it on his interview and he's saying hey you know Courtney's missing this is unlike her we want her back and all the basic stuff that people say about their family members when they go missing but the one thing that this guy didn't have was any emotion I'm, I'm checking him out I'm watching him talking I'm like he doesn't really seem upset and, and he almost seems like he's enjoying this the interview it's just kind of gave me a funny feeling but turns out his name was Gerald Borderline, and he went by Jimmy. But in the years that I would come to know him in the future, I always called him Gerald. Fast forward, the K-9 
case goes on and on and they continue to work it and they eventually end up turning away from thinking that it's the serial killer that's in the in the area active at the time to focusing on Gerald Jimmy Bordelon because as it turned out Gerald Bordelon had three prior convictions for kidnapping and rape and so Detective Watts and Sager, Chuck and Benita, really never took their eyes off this guy. Uh, I, I don't believe they ever thought it was the serial killer uh, that was working the area at the time. And so they they start looking into him. And when it comes to light that this guy's criminal history is that of actually kidnapping and raping people. And, I mean, he'd been to prison numerous times for it and got out on parole both times early for good behavior. So they, they're starting to focus on him and they ended up following him thinking that he may lead them to where, wherever Courtney was, uh, hopefully that she would be alive, but they were pretty much sure by this time that, that she wasn't going to be found alive, but they started following him. And one night he drives up into Mississippi. Now Mississippi isn't that far from Livingston Parish. Y'all it's only probably, uh, 45-minute drive tops to the state line. But he he drove up to a small town called Gloucester, Mississippi. And that probably is like an hour and a half, two hours from Livingston Parish. And they were telling him he didn't know it, but they lost it. And, and then they picked him back up a while later, late that night. And when they were driving by a local cemetery, and he's in the cemetery by himself at night. And he's carrying a stack of... Courtney's flyers, flyers they had made up with her picture on it and the date she went missing and her date of birth, et cetera. And so they had been working with the FBI and they called the FBI profilers and said, hey, how can we approach him, et cetera. And then they collaborated on it. And then they went and they approached him in the cemetery. And the, one of the first things he says was, I'm not up here trying to get rid of a body. Well, that's kind of a strange thing to say, right? And so they they had that interaction with him in the cemetery, and they of course they didn't have anything to hold him on or really to question him. And he leaves, but well, guess what? They know that Livingston Parish detectives are not up in Mississippi in the middle of the night on for no reason. So now he knows he's a suspect in the disappearance of, of Courtney. And so they continued to work the case, collaborate with the FBI, and they came up with a interrogation strategy for him to try to get him to break. And they used his sister and Courtney's mom, and they gave him specific questions to ask him when they brought him in for the interview. And they worked him over like that, and it's just he non-responsive. And they, they said he was just cold, calculated psychopath the psychopathic behavior he's smooth character just wasn't frazzled wasn't concerned but they they continued on and eventually they warmed down and he gave it up he told the truth about what happened to courtney let me back it up before i get to that point and tell you about the mother Jennifer Bordelon, she met Gerald Bordelon when she had posted a ad to sell a go-kart 
online. You know, Gerald Bordelon meets up with her, and this is like two years before, meets up with her to buy the go-kart for his daughters. He had several daughters, and they kind of struck it off. Like I said, Gerald Bordelon was a good-looking dude, and he was a smooth character. He's charming, and so they started dating. Well, it wasn't long into it, whether Gerald Bordelon told her first or not, before probation and parole came knocking on her door and told her, hey, Jennifer, you have to know Gerald Bordelon is a convicted sex offender. He's been convicted several times. He's done prison time several times for raping and kidnapping young girls. And Jennifer didn't care. She continued to date him, and, and shortly thereafter, they got married, even though she was warned, right? She's been told this guy is a rapist, a child rapist, that serial child rapist. She didn't care. She was charmed by him, smitten with him, and they got married. And that gave... Gerald Bordelon instant access to her three daughters. The, the two that didn't live with her full time whenever they came over. And he unfortunately had full access to Courtney. But the mom said, oh, he he loved my girls and he cherished them and he, he did everything for them. Well, let me tell you a little bit about that. Okay, there's two types of sexual offenders on children. The profiles I'm talking about. And the profiles show that you either are a situational offender or a preferential offender. And now a situational offender is kind of self-explanatory. This is like the ice cream man who's driving his truck through the neighborhood and sees the one kid by himself and the situation is right and he snatches the kid up and rapes him. But the situational offender doesn't really have a specific age range or victim that he looks for or they don't really plan it out. It's just the situation is right and they give in to their desires and they, they rape the kid. Okay. Now the preferential offender is much more complex profile. Preferential offender, they usually all of them are, or highly intelligent. It doesn't mean that they're formally educated. It just means they're smart. And they have a specific age range, usually, that they like to offend against. And they groom their victims. They take their time. They'll ingratiate themselves into the family or into the victim's life, however it is, as a family friend or a teacher or preacher or priest whatever but the whole time they're in their mind they think they're smarter than everybody else and they're playing their game and they see them how far they can push it and until they groom their victims and like I said ultimately commit that the rape acts molestation rape whatever it may be and Gerald Bordelon obviously saw an opportunity in Jennifer's family I mean to have three instant built-in targets with her two twin sisters and then Courtney LeBlanc. And so he marries in. And 
it wasn't long. It didn't take long. And the, the first sexual allegations came out that Courtney's older sister, one of the twins, said that Gerald Borla molested her. And it went to the grand jury in Mississippi after the CAC interview, which is a child advocacy center interview, she, she gave the tape statement of what happened uh, and the allegations. But then when it went to the grand jury, she didn't show up to testify uh, two separate times. And therefore, even though the grand jury had the, the videotape testimony uh, of the sister, they didn't, they didn't true bill it. So, or they no build uh, Gerald Bordelon on, on the case. Then, not long before they moved to Louisiana, Courtney LeBlanc called in on a hotline and said that she had been molested by Gerald Bordelon. Again, the process is the, the Child Advocacy Center forensic interview was set up and then it went to the grand jury and they didn't bill him. They they did not indict him on the on the molestation charges. And guess what happens? Mom Jennifer decides she's had enough of Mississippi, and before the case can really continue any further or any more, he could be put on Gerald Jimmy borderline. She moves to Denham Springs. Alleges she alleges later on that she she broke it off with borderline which is just absolute lie because we know that he continued to be around them at their new residence, including the week before Courtney went missing. Gerald Bordelon was doing some electrical work inside the residence and he got shocked and Courtney called 911 and actually had to give him CPR. And I mean, she actually saved his life. So he's there. And I think the, the mother moved them out of Mississippi into Livingston Parish strictly to have a clean slate and keep the authorities off of them. But that being said, it doesn't lessen the tragedy of the case. And what happens next, I'm, I'm going to play you a recording of the actual confession of where Gerald Jimmy Bordelon tells Detective Watts and FBI agent Jeff Methan on tape what he did to Courtney. Yeah, you know, when I play this, he's it's almost like he's whispering, uh, so it's going to be a little bit hard to hear. Um, he's not speaking loud it's almost like he's whispering in the interrogation room so bear with me and we'll talk about it uh, once the playback's concluded Driving her back to Louisiana. 
he wasn't taking her home. Where are you taking me? She asked for a home. So what did you tell her? Okay, y'all, in case you couldn't hear it, they had him in the interview room and he admitted that on that Friday that he went to Jennifer's house and Courtney was asleep on the couch and then he got a knife from the kitchen and he woke her up and he told her, you're coming with me. And he then, he said, if you scream or holler or fight or whatever, I'm going to kill you. Then he drove her to Mississippi where he said that he raped her. Now, officially, he said he only made her perform oral sex on him, that he raped her orally, right? And I don't believe that, but I'll tell you why in a second. But then he drove her back to Louisiana, and he stated that when she realized that they weren't going in the direction of the house, she said, where are you taking me? And you probably couldn't hear it because he was whispering, but he said to the river. And she said, why do you like to go to the river? And he said, because that's where I used to come when I was young. And when they got close to the river, they got out of the vehicle. They're walking down towards the river. And he stated that he choked her to death from behind and he left her on the river. Or beside the river. Now, issues I have with this is, the first of all, I believe he probably raped her more than just orally because when she was found, and he later that day, he took him to her body. And when she was found, she was found naked except for a pair of shorts and one sock. And her body was very badly decomposed, even though it had only been 11 days. Uh, Dr. Louis Cataldi, it was the forensic pathologist that did the autopsy, his office did it, said that the maggots and the bugs had eaten away the skin on her face and her skull is showing through and, you know, her body's in really bad condition. And should, he just dumped her on the side of the river like a piece of trash, right? And But he dropped her on the East Baton Rouge Parish side of the river. Now, the Amy River is what separates the two parishes. It's a geographical line that separates East Baton Rouge Parish from Livingston Parish. And he's smart, though. Gerald Bordelon knows that if he drops her on the East Baton Rouge side, that it's going to be harder for them to find her, especially if the water comes up and washes her away or her body decomposes to the point where it's just bones and gets eaten by animals, etc. I mean, he's smart. He's hoping that it'll go by and she'll deteriorate enough where it'll just be a body or some scraps of bones left. But he, he takes it to the body. They recover it. And Dr. Cataldi actually wrote about it in a section of one of his books. And he said how horrible it is that a young girl like that who actually cried out for help 
when she made the call about being molested. And what's even more horrible is that she was put in that situation by her own mother who was warned, this guy is a rapist, a child rapist. The mom didn't care. And she continued even after Courtney had reported her own molestation, even after the older sister reports her own molestation, the mom, Jennifer, continues to allow Gerald Bordelon access to Courtney. She's 12 years old. What's she going to do? It's just sad. I'm going to conclude this first part episode. We're by no means done talking about Gerald Jimmy Bordelon. In episode two, I'm going to tell you how I came to have almost daily contact with Gerald Bordelon, the discussions we had, and then new developments in the case uh, before he goes to trial, some dramatic things that happen, and then the trial and the ultimate result, which is Ultimately, what happened with Gerald Bordelon is only the second time in the, in the history of the state of Louisiana that this ever happened, ever. So stay tuned for part two next week. And then I warn you, next week is going to be extremely graphic of a sexual nature, the details that come out. And so until next time, y'all. We appreciate you listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. And I'm your host, Woody Call.